Is there purpose and meaning to life? I certainly hope so. We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Meaning in life, purpose in life. Hmm. You know, um, part of why I started this whole endeavor uh, into this program was to try to explore this idea of <clears throat> happiness and fulfillment in life and my feeling that most of the unhappiness and unfulfillment in life came from people not connecting with their purpose. But in order for me to state that, I have to on some level believe that we all have a purpose. And uh, I think most of us, I think most of us feel that. Knowing it is is entirely different from feeling it though. Uh, my guest tonight has written a book. Uh, it has to deal with that and other stuff. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I love learning from smart people. I love talking to smart people. But sometimes, occasionally, I feel like I'm in over my head on a discussion. And tonight might be one of those. Uh, I'm going to try to hold on and uh, and try to understand some of these concepts with my small, limited brain and imagination. So I hope you'll uh, stick with me and help me. Uh, find my way through this discussion. Uh, Stephen G. Post, PhD, is an international speaker, best-selling author, and director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. I know that place. I've been there. I worked there. He has been quoted in more than 3,000 national and international newspapers and magazines and has been interviewed on uh, major broadcasts broadcast including abc's 2020 nightline the daily show john stossel talk of nation and uh, talk of the nation and many 
many more. And I guess he's here tonight to ruin his reputation or his, his streak with being on top of the media. <laughs> anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Stephen G. Post uh, to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Dr. Post, welcome. Thanks, Matt. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, your book is entitled, your your latest book, because you've, you've written many books, but your latest book is called God and Love on Route 80. Do I have God and Love and Route 8 on Route 80? Uh, the Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Now, that's a, that's a whole lot for a small brain like me to wrap around pretty quickly. I mean, I know you, Route 80. <laughs> God and love are very um, open-ended questions to me. Like, what what does it mean? And I go back to uh, um, Carl Sagan, who said we can't really have a a discussion about God until we can actually agree on a definition of what we mean by the word. So, uh, do you agree with that? Uh, actually, I'd be very close to agreeing with that. I think that's true. And part of this is to give us a perspective on the supreme or the absolute or ultimate reality that uh, brings to bear uh, science and tradition and mysticism and a dream I had when I was 15. Uh, And the dream you're talking about is the blue angel dream. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment, but uh, just so, uh, because I think it's some uh, foundational uh, concepts here. Do you think it is possible for the human race to get to a place of knowing knowing what reality really is? Because I, I struggle with this, I, and I have these conversations a lot, and I've heard different ideas about what consciousness is and what what uh, what it means to be a conscious person, what, what, what that means, and are we unique, all this kind of stuff. And the more I get into it, and I've said this several times in the last six months, and people think I'm being too cynical, I feel like knowing knowing the, the, the true essence of reality is like almost impossible or, or impossible. And if it's that difficult, is it even worth knowing why, 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 is it, why do we need to go down this road? <laughs> well, well, we're not going to get it perfectly, but over the centuries, people have suggested that uh, there is a kind of underlying energy. There is, some have called it an original one mind, an original one heart. I'm uh, of the one mind school, that uh, our minds are not simply evolved from brain tissue and cells and matter, but that mind is first, that matter comes from mind, and that, uh, as the Hindus uh, would argue, but as the Kabbalistic Jews would argue, and many traditions would argue, first there was this mind, and this mind is uh, free, loving, creative, and brings the universe into being. Okay. Uh, Uh, If I may, is this... Is this uh, limited to human beings, or because uh, when, when we talk about connectedness and one mind, uh, first of all, this planet and many types of different animals and even plants are are thought to have have consciousness. But then, uh, and I don't even know if we want to go here yet. The entire universe is, is the there is um 
infinite possibilities for life to be otherwise. So are you suggesting that this one mind, this one consciousness, this one energy of uh, initial um, creation is universal and, and, and extends to beyond human beings to other uh, life forms? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's universal. It, underlined, it underlies all of reality. Um, if you were a quantum physicist, you would be amazed at how uh, vibrant and unstable the world around us really is. It's not so much like a landscape painting, but it's a, a, the smallest particles flashing in and out of existence in a 15th of a century of a second. That's really what reality is. And so in that sense, um, uh, some mystics have said that this energy is reality, it is ultimate reality. We just don't quite see it uh, in our normal state of mind. Right. So uh, and now this is all, it's a hopeful message that you're delivering here. But, and I, I don't mean to be cynical. I mean to be a little bit skeptical because I think being a skeptic is a good thing, but I don't mean to be cynical ever at all about this stuff. I keep an open mind to it. But it's all begs big questions that I think are unanswerable. Like if this is true and there's one universal mind, why are we so unhumane to each other why is there inhumanity towards man and i know that's a huge question and <laughs> you know you know human nature is a is on one level a very very nasty thing and we see that exhibited almost perfectly day in and day out uh but it's always a good idea to remember there's a flip side to the coin and uh the question is you know where is the balance um I think that we are free. Uh, if the uh, if the Hindus are right, uh, this supreme being uh, is loving, creative, and free, and brings the universe into existence, a la a Big Bang, with the idea that it's set up the so-called anthropic principle to give rise to uh, life forms that are also free and creative and potentially loving. And so we do have our freedom, and I don't blame anything on the absolute, on the supreme being. I think, on the contrary, uh, uh, it's very difficult uh, uh, for that reality to uh, to stomach some of the things that we humans are up to. Uh, okay. Uh, now, you are as far as dogs. As, as, yeah. So yes, non-humans can have. A, a cosmic consciousness, uh, and 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 you know you you can't you can't ex and you know there's uh, there's a wonderful story about a, a a family that was driving on Route 80 all the way out west, and somewhere in Utah, uh, Route 80 runs by Salt Lake City. Uh, they lost their dog. They loved this dog, and they couldn't find the dog. And then they went very reluctantly. They went all the way out to the west coast. And five months later, the dog showed up at their new apartment. Yeah. Now, how do you explain something like that? It's no. impossible to explain it unless there's something at work in this mind that cherishes us. And and some species, of course, you know, are developed enough to have some uh, gift of this mindedness in a way that's not completely unlike our own. You know, I've had that ex exact, well, not that exact experience, but very close to that experience. When I was five years old, uh, we had a puppy that I had brought home, 
and uh, my father didn't want it. And so he took it to what he worked 30 miles away from where I live and took it to work at John F. Kennedy Airport in, in New York and left it there and came home. And uh, the next day, the dog was sitting on the on the uh, front steps of, of the house. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so first of all, I have to say, other than me, you are the only person I ever heard utter the words anthropic, anthropic principle. And I've used it in, in terms of um, and trying to explain the mathematical uh, possibilities that uh, or, or likelihood that um, there is intelligent design and intelligence to the, the creation of this universe, that there had to be some intent and desire to create everything that, that that we want but i i'm not a scientist and i don't explain it well and when people ask me to go deeper that's about as deep as i can get so if you could well, <laughs> yeah so i i knew john barrow who coined the term john died three years ago he was a templeton laureate and i was on the board of the templeton foundation for many years i knew sir john i knew all these physicists and biologists from all over the world and basically, their argument is that the constants of the universe, the thermodynamic principles, had to be perfectly tuned to give rise through a process of evolution to uh, a species um, as capable as ours is of having this kind of one mind consciousness. This just didn't happen. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't make sense that it could simply occur without some kind of purposefulness to it. And so there is purpose, and, and I think there is purpose in the universe. And in all these sacred scriptures, people look up at the starry heavens and they, they, they proclaim that somehow we are cherished, more cherished than we know. Uh, uh, now, I want to get to the, the Blue Angel Dream, but I, I still have to go a little deeper here because you are in in academia and a man of science, but also a man uh, uh, who is looking into things that are typically thought of as outside the realm of science, <laughs> put it that way. But I, from what my perspective, science and not religion, but science and the idea of of what you're talking about something that requires thinking and and, and imagination beyond mm -hmm. what we know yeah. uh that they, they seem to be to have been at odds for centuries but now they seem to be moving closer and closer together uh in academia are you a lone wolf out there with this kind of study or, or, or am i just uninformed oh. about how Oh, oh, no, I mean, I'm actually a member of the International Society for Science and Religion, which is based at Cambridge University. It's 200 people who were elected. And these are huge figures in mathematics, in physics, in philosophy of mind, in theology and spirituality. And there is a huge uh, kind of coming together um, uh, that we're seeing now. And that's why many people aren't satisfied with sort of, you know, classical orthodoxies of any kind. You know, uh, they, they, uh, they want something that's really innovative, but also highly geared toward the best science. So, so any good theology 
should be based on the best science. Okay. And, you know, even Thomas Aquinas at his time, all those centuries ago, was basing his theology on Aristotle, and Aristotle was the best science of the yeah. time. Right. Okay. But I did notice you said science and religion, not science and faith, not science and mysticism, not science and spirituality, science and religion. And I feel like every anytime I hear religion, I think of organized religion. And oh, I yeah. think that's where, where the problem in most of our uh, ability to kind of have real conversations about this stuff organized religion is a big uh stumbling block in, in our ability to have these conversations in a very open-minded and very uh informative yes. way yes ordinarily yeah absolutely yes i ordinarily i would i would speak about science and spirituality or science and spirit uh i was doing a talk about that last night here at stony brook on the on the other side of nichols road um, but absolutely, science and spirituality, and spirituality not just in terms of our consciousness of some one original mind, if you will. Um, I mean, even Einstein would have these Gedanke experiments where he would go into deep, deep meditation, and, and he believed himself that he uh, was inspired in many of his most creative moments by uh, a mind that was in fact greater than his own and that was almost invading his consciousness. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how we would come to any other conclusion than that, to be honest with you. That's, I mean, uh, yeah. even looking back at it now, a hundred years later, looking at or more than a hundred years later, looking at some of those revelations, it's hard to, it's hard to think of any other possibility. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at Cambridge in, in the UK and, uh, in Trinity College, which is, you know, the big science, math college there, they have a beautiful library, Matt. And in the middle of the library is a glass case. And in that case are the two notebooks of Ramanujan. If you ever saw the movie, The Man Who Knew Infinity. Yeah. This was a guy in southern India, in Chennai. And he worshipped... Uh, at some altar of a goddess and he did no, had no background in mathematics. He had no training in mathematics and he would be into these kinds of meditational, worshipful states, uh, you know, reciting his mantras. And then he would see these formulas, algorithms and so forth. And he'd write them down in, with his finger in the dirt. <laughs> and then he'd come back later and he'd write them in a notebook. And somebody found these things, and they actually uh, published a couple of his uh, equations in uh, one of these relatively throwaway Indian uh, math, math journals. And the people at Cambridge somehow saw it. It was brought to their attention. And this is about 1900. They brought uh, Ramanujan to Cambridge. And um, the, the trouble is, he, he knew everything that he was saying was true, but he didn't feel like he had to prove it to anybody. That was just a waste of his energy. So they wanted to, he did make, he did, he did publish a few proofs in the, in the major math journals, but fundamentally he felt that he had received this. And now that those two notebooks, which are in the center of the most famous science library in the world, those are the two notebooks of Ramanujan. And they are the basis of all of quantum physics. Yeah. You know, and the man who knew infinity, you can 
pick it up on Netflix or whatever, you know, it's a great movie. And um, so there, there are many people uh, who have had these unbelievable breakthrough creative moments and they felt that they were, um, it wasn't coming simply from them, but they were really participating in a knowledge that was much larger than, than themselves. Okay. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying, and I, I definitely will rewatch that movie. I did watch it, but I'm gonna gonna rewatch it now with that insight. I didn't realize uh, those those manuscripts uh, were in Cambridge, and and actually people had access to them. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated with the idea of dreams being more than just um, imagination. Uh, giving rest to our our physical brain in in the moment. I've had some very uh, impactful uh, emotional uh, dreams, uh, dreams that have made me feel like filled me with wonder. And when I woke up, and, and lasted for days, weeks, and, and filled me with questions about dreams. So, so let's start with the Blue Angel dream. Explain to people what that is and, and what, when you started having it and, and all that. So listen, I mean, uh, just to, you know, to be clear, I've been teaching in medical schools for almost 40 years. I taught at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. I taught in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I spent 20 years living in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and teaching at Case Medical School. And I've been here at Stony Brook for 13 years. I'm a highly regarded uh, social scientist, and I'm also you know, pretty well versed in uh, immunology and endocrinology. In fact, I did that for a while before I went to the University of Chicago and studied world religions and psychology. So I'm a kind of a mixed bag type guy. So how did I get this way? How did I get on this path? And hence Route 80, okay? Now, I'm not going to belabor this, okay, because it would go on forever. You got to read the book, God and Love on Route 80. Let me pull it up one more time. (laughs) Okay, so so I'm just going to tell you the honest story. And all my friends uh, know about this. Even, you know, I went to high school at St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, which is a kind of a a boys' prep school at the time. And um, when I was 15, um, I had this recurring dream. We all had to take sacred studies courses and philosophy and and I was reading uh, scriptures from all the world's religious traditions when I was a really pretty young kid. But, uh, you know, we, I, we had to go to chapel every morning, the chapel of St. Peter and St. Paul. And it was like an eight o'clock chapel service. And this is like just, you know, after breakfast. So breakfast was at seven. So uh, one morning, uh, about five o'clock, I, I, was, I was awake, but I didn't feel like I was, I was simply awake. I kind of was betwixt and between sleep and wakefulness and something unusual happened. I'm not a big dreamer. I'm still not a big dreamer. Um, but I had this, um, interesting kind of a dream. It was also just kind of a vision, I guess. Uh, there was a road that was going to the West and, uh, there was a lot of fog and it was very cloudy. I couldn't see very far, but I'm walking down this road And then I hear a rustling sound to my left. And I look to the left and I squint. And I think I see the contours of a young guy's face uh, with stringy blonde hair. And he's about to jump 
uh, of some kind of allege. And then suddenly the face of, uh, this is not a winged angel, just the face of a, of a, of a, a feminine face of a blue entity who I thought was angelic, right? Comes into the dream. Everything turns blue. The mist evaporates. And she says to me in a very empathic voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the dream is over. I told that story to Steve Jobs, who slept on my floor at Reed College. And I'll tell you what he thought about it one day. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, well, it, it just seems to me like, oh, first of all, uh, I would have taken from that that I was somehow connected to that guy on the, or, or that entity on the ledge. And that was somehow me because if, if saving him, her, whatever it was, uh, meant that I would survive, then that must mean that I, I'm somehow connected to them. Like either they are me and yeah. I don't realize it. Uh, what was your takeaway? Well, there's I, it, there's I, thou, and there's I, me. That's the Hindu thing. We're all one. So when right. we save someone else, else, we also save ourselves. Right. But I had no particular take on it, although I used to read a lot of Emerson uh, and and I like the idea of the oversoul, which was a very Hindu idea, and um, and so I took this to my class, uh, my sacred studies class, and I told everybody about the dream, and um, some of them thought it was completely crazy, but I had a wonderful teacher who didn't think it was so crazy because he took adolescent spirituality a little more seriously than most people. Anyway, the thing about this dream was that I. Uh, I had it six times over the period of a year. So it just recurred. It was just exactly the same dream. And I would talk with people. Charlie Scribner, whose dad owned Scribner's books, was in my dormitory up at St. Paul's. And I would tell him the story. I'd tell, I told Everybody knew the story. And, and my teacher, Rod Wells, who was an Episcopal minister um, uh, and very Buddhist in his style, um, I would walk into the chapel in the mornings and he, and he would ask me, have I had any blue uh, blue angel dreams lately? <laughs> but I didn't know what to do with it, and I kind of left it behind. He did take me. He was a Yale Divinity School graduate, and so one day he took me to Yale from New Hampshire, it was you know several hours drive to Yale Divinity School, and I talked about my dream in a class that was run by a guy named Jim Diddies, who was a Jungian and an adolescent psychologist. And they asked me, so what you know, what about this dream? Do people think you were nuts? I said, no, I'm perfectly functional. Uh, you know, I wasn't uh, out in the sun too long, raking leaves and working <laughs> off the merits. I hadn't had a bad hot dog that left me dyspeptic, you know. I was basically okay. I was, you know, still doing sports, going to class. Life was good. And I was happy. But I'd had this dream, and people talked a lot about it. So, um they asked, they asked me at Yale, this was a class of about 15 or 16 guys. They said, so did this make you do anything unusual? I said, yeah, I actually thought I should apply to one college out west because the road was heading west, okay? So I applied to Reed College just for no reason at all. And that was kind of a, of a far out place, I must say. And, um, uh, and, and then we went, we went, you know, uh, we went back to St. Paul's. And, uh, you know, two years later, uh, Rod had gotten me a job in the Bronx tutoring. I loved tutoring. And my parents wouldn't let, let it happen. They said it was too dangerous. 
And uh, my father was the president of W and J Sloan's department store on Fifth Avenue, which has long since gone out of business. Um, but my mother prevailed. My dad was uh, accommodating to her. He didn't want to get divorced over my tutoring for the summer. So after three days of heavy arguing, uh, I was supposed to go to Swarthmore. My mother said, I'm not going to cover your tuition. And I said, oh, come on, this is too much. So I said, all right, I won't, I won't work in, in the Bronx, but, but what am I going to do? And my dad knew, he knew every, every factory in greater New York because he was always buying stuff for the Sloan's furniture store. So he said, I got it. You can work at Bill de Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue. <laughs> so with my Siddhartha book in my pocket, I drove my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190 to patch up from West Islip. Wow. I did this for two, two weeks and I managed. Okay. I just cut cardboard. I was between two very wonderful and I respected them large Italian women. And, uh, and, and, and then I just said, you know, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. And so I drove the Mercedes out to West Hampton beach where I had a bunch of friends from school who, who lived out there. And I had a girlfriend there too. And about 11 at night on a Saturday night, I said, you know, things are not so good at home. I'm tired of this argument. I'm not working in that factory one more day. And I'm going West. I'm going to follow my dream. (laughs) And so, so, you know, with, with just, you know, a few articles of clothing and, you know, Siddhartha and a couple of other things, you know, 50 bucks in my wallet, my classical guitar, I was a pretty decent classical guitarist. I just started driving west. So I drove west on, you know, the Sunrise Highway, right? And I got I, I, I got through the Midtown Tunnel. And I'd never driven over the George Washington Bridge, but I was able to, you know, just get over there on that on that side of town. And I drove over the bridge and there were two signs. One said 95 South, but there was no South in the dream. Right. But then I saw Route 80 West. And I said, that's my road. <laughs> so, <had> done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so I drove West and I got, well, I got through Pennsylvania to the Lewisburg exit, which is where Bucknell is. You know, my daughter actually went to Bucknell. And so whenever she would have any shenanigans and I had to pick her up from Cleveland, because we were living in Cleveland at the time, I would remember this experience I had because there I was, the generator broke on this Mercedes. I mean, it was an old Mercedes. It had seen a lot better days. And when the generator busted in those cars, you, it was completely dead. There was no light, no engine, right. nothing. And so, I, and just as this was happened, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to do a U-turn over the midway and I'm going to go back and I'm going to leave my reputation in, in, in good stead at home. But the universe had a different plan. So I got that car over to the right shoulder and it's like five in the morning. I look all around. There's nothing there. You know, people don't have cell phones yet. Um, and so I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment. And um, my family kept this. They framed it. Uh, to the And I wrote it in pencil. To the Pennsylvania State Police. Please return this car. To Henry A.V. Post. 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 
516-669-5655 from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> and then I put it, I put it on the dashboard and I got my guitar and my things and I put my thumb out and this big truck came along like a miracle and I was on my way West. And that's when I figured out what the dream meant, but it took a while. Okay. Tell me what well, we figured it out. We're, we're all dying to know. What did you figure okay. out from this? Okay. So, so, uh, it's, you know, a long story short, I get out to San Francisco because that's where my cousin, George Lamont lived, uh, in the mission district on Chenery street. It's a Chenery and market. And that was kind of a tough area at the time. It's now very gentrified. Uh, but you know, George was a Vietnam, uh, vet two doors of duty uh, he was a North Carolina Chapel Hill graduate in Chinese studies. He was a smart guy, but he was part of the Vietnam subculture. And he, he was kind to me. He let me sleep on his floor. And uh, down the street on that intersection with Market and Chenery, there was a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist temple. And I loved that stuff because you, you would go in there and you had beads and you chanted Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, which means I am one with the pure love of the universe. And when you do that, when you get 50 people in a room doing that loud, you lose all sense of time, all sense of place and space. It's like a total flow experience. And it's very profound. So I, I spent a lot of time doing Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And, um, and I played classical guitar in the Hispanic restaurants, you know, Via Lobos and Tarega and all that stuff. And then I drew a really, really, really bad draft number that's when they were doing the draft things in the birthday bins and um so i turned down reed college they'd accepted me you know but i, I decided i was going to go to swarthmore but I, I called them and i said you know i i think i probably need to go to college or i'm going to wind up you know going over to vietnam and killing a lot of babies and you know arlo guthrie type stuff yeah. and, and uh, i loved arlo guthrie so so uh, we had a little gathering in front of the temple about, you know, seven in the morning. And Gus, who was one of the leaders of the temple, gave me a scroll, which your listeners can Google. It's called a Gohon Zone. Gohon Zone. And he unscrolled it and he said, you know, this means universal mind. This means universal love. This means or the origin of the universe. And, um, uh, and this is for you. So he gave it to me. I, I scrolled it back up and put it in my backpack. And I got on the Market Street bus and I went over to across town to Golden Gate Park. I walked across that big park and I and I walked up those rocky, uh, almost cliff-like stairs onto the pedestrian part of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I couldn't see more than about two feet in front of me because the, the fog was so heavy. Uh, it was like this crazy morning fog. And I get up to the middle of the big span, because there's only one span. And uh, I still can't see very much, but I hear something rustling to the left of me. And I squinted really hard, and I saw a face that was somewhat like the one that I'd seen in my dream. And a guy with kind of stringy blonde hair. And um, I looked at him, and he looked at me. And he was clearly pissed because I interrupted him in some moment of uh, suicidal uh, ecstasy, I guess. M maybe he was drugged up. I'm not sure. But I looked at him and I said, 
I surely hope you don't plan to jump. And then he screamed bloody murder. It was like, you know, actually Macbeth, you know, life is empty nothingness and who the hell, you know, it was incredible. And I said, you know, when you're out there on that ledge about to jump, he was on the other side of the railing. He was really out there. I said, it sounds very realistic. It's a lot better than when we did it in Memorial Hall at St. Paul's, you know. So we talked for a while and I said, you know, I don't jump until I tell you how I think I got here. And this is the point of the dream. I said, two and a half years ago, I was a 15-year-old kid in Concord, New Hampshire, 3,000 miles away from here. And I had this peculiar recurring dream. And I told him about the dream. And I said, I think you were in it. And, um, and, 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 and I told him about the car. I told him about Bill DeBono's lampshade factory. <laughs> I went into great detail. I went really slow and, and kind of peacefully with him. And he settled down. And, and I told him, you know, about the, the letter I wrote to the Pennsylvania State Police. And I told him about Cousin George. And, and I said, look, I really think that I'm here to, to encounter you. Now, again, 3,000 miles away, two and a half years ago. So time and time and place, they're not real. And I said, here I am, and I'm on this side of the ledge, and you're on that side of the ledge, but we're really not much different. I could be out there. You could be here. It's just, you know, who knows? And, and I said, why don't you come over uh, the railing and stand here with me, and I'm going to give you something that's going to change your luck. Because like the Buddhists, you know, they have a lot of lucky charms and things. You know? I said, I'm going to give you something that's going to change your luck. So he said, what's that? I said, I'm going to give you a gajon zone. And then he started cussing at me again. I said, come on over here. So he came over and I pulled my gajon zone out of my backpack and I unscrolled it and I explained it to him as best I could. And, um, and I said, if you take this, you're going to have a wonderful future. Um, I'm going to give you 40 bucks. I'd actually made some money that summer, you know, in the, in the bars playing classical guitar. And I'm going to give you a note. And I wrote him a note to cousin George Lamont, dear George, 15 Chenry street. This is Harry. Please let him sleep where I slept. Take care of him. Bring him down to the temple, introduce him to Gus and see if you can help him get his life straightened out. So, uh, we shook hands. He calmed down. And he walked south on, on the bridge, and I walked north. And as we were separating, all this morning uh, cloud and mist completely disappeared. And it was this radiant, like vibrantly blue sky. And I just felt at that moment in my soul that somehow that was the moment in the dream. And, 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 you know, Harry's actually lives in North Carolina and he, 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 he turned out okay. He's actually a pretty smart guy. And, and my cousin George, you know, was, was, you know, he was a, he was a wonderful human being and he eventually later in life got married and had a couple of kids and so forth. But so, so then, so what about, you know, if you save him, you too shall live. That was your question, you know? Right. Yeah. So I get to the, to the North end of the Golden Gate Bridge and I'm, I'm walking and I've got my guitar and my few books and a few items in my backpack. I don't have my gajon zone anymore. Um, and by the way, if you give away your gajon zone, it's supposed to be bad luck. <laughs> so, so it was a real sacrifice. <laughs> but anyway, I put my thumb out and this little uh, red 
Ford Ranger came along and this guy threw the door open and he said, hey, boy, where are you going? I said, Portland, Oregon. And he said, well, my name's Dwayne Dill and this here is my wife, Dorothy. And we're actually driving up to Oregon. So I got in this truck he, and, 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 then, and then she looked at me. She had red hair, screaming red hair. And she said, yeah, Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And, and, and they took me right up to Oregon. And, and that, that I got there later in the afternoon. And, you know, I, I mean, I won't go into a lot of stuff there, but it was the era of jobs and, and Robert Bly was the poet in residence and, and uh, uh, Ken Kesey was writing once a great notion in the Willamette river Valley. And he would come there and visit on the green. And, you know, it was that kind of an era. I was not, I was not into the substance stuff, but I was, I, I just loved the counterculture. And um, the um, so what happened was, and this is where the rest of the dream comes into play. So it was late January, and I lived in a dormitory called Ackerman Dormitory. And um, it doesn't snow a lot in Oregon, but it rains like all the time. And sometimes in the winter, the rain gets slushy, cold, kind of icy. And... So I'm sitting in the coffee house and I'm sitting with some friends and this guy comes bouncing in through the door. We'd never seen him before. And his eyes were completely lit up and he had this, uh, you know, crazy brown curly hair and all different directions. And, and he had a, a, a black leather motor jacket on. And, um, and he said, who wants to go for a ride on my brand new Harley Davidson shovelhead, which was like the fastest bike on earth at the time. And I, I, I'd never ridden a motorcycle before. So I said, I'll do it. Now it's about, it's 11 at night. It's, I'm sorry. What time is it? It's nine at night. So, um, so I go out into the parking lot and I get on the back of this uh, motorcycle and Andy, the guy who was, who, who, who owned the bike, um, he, uh, he, he, he took off slipping and sliding and he hit about 130 really in maybe two minutes. He went through every stop sign, every red light, and he went out to the Pacific coast highway. And I was like thinking my life is over. I'm a dead man. And he hit 180 in that shovel head going South toward California. And, and we, I mean, it was unbelievable. I was screaming. I was, I was in tears and he was like screaming into the night with this thick rain coming into his face. It was insane, you know, <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to say, but I actually thought, you know, I was cashing in my chips. I, I, I really believe that was the end. So lo and behold, about an hour into this harrowing ride, he does a U-turn and he drives back same speed, goes through every light, every stop sign skids to a stop and he drops me off exactly where he had picked me up, which was about 20 feet from the door of the coffee house. And now it's 11 o'clock at night. So I stumbled, uh, wobbly as hell. You know, I stumbled across a bridge because there's a ravine there and uh, got into Ackerman dormitory where there's a, a common room, a foyer in a common room. And there's a payphone. Okay. Uh, on the wall, because most of these dorms had payphones. I never answered the payphone. My parents 
they never could get in touch with me. And, and it was just, that was just the way I lived. But for some reason, uh, just as I walked in, in and crossed the threshold, the phone rang. And I felt pushed toward the phone. I didn't see anything. It's not like I could have turned around and said, hey, there's something pushing me. No, I didn't, nothing like that. But I just felt this, this energy pushing me toward the phone. So I picked it up and I said, hello. And it was my mother. Now that's my mom in New York. Now it's, you have to realize, okay, it's 11 o'clock. 2 a.m. Yeah. yeah. It's two and two in the morning in New York. And, um, and she did love me, even though I was an annoying kid. <laughs> you know, this, is what, this is what Rupert Sheldrake talks about in terms of morphic fields, that somehow these connections occur between people who have love and special relationships. So, so I, so I said, I, 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 she said, Stevie, I woke up, I was sweating. <clears throat> I woke up, your dad. I thought you were dead. Are you okay? And I said, Mom. I'm okay, but I thought I was dead too. And then we had a heart-to-heart -heart talk, you know, about about what had just happened to me. <clears throat> and my mom was kind of a a bit of a Catholic mystic. She actually grew up in Sagaponic on a potato farm. <laughs> okay, you know that. Yeah. That yeah. Was, you know, <clears throat> on on Hedges Lane, Lane, the McGee family, Molly McGee. Wow. And um, uh, uh, actually, her family built that uh, that church in in uh, Bridgehampton. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, you know, she was a bit of a mystic. And so we kind of, from that point on, we were quite connected. And, 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 and so as I thought about this in retrospect, um, I began to think that maybe because I saved that kid, Harry, on the Golden Gate Bridge, maybe that's why this universal original mind, original love and all of its synchronicity got me safe off that bike and gave my mom that amazing premonition. And I never doubted all, all of my life. I've never doubted that we're much more connected, not just because we have, you know, uh, cells and, uh, you know, body temperature and we eat and we, you know, we, 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 we're connected in the same atmosphere. We breathe the same air, but at a deeper level, uh, I believe in this idea of one mind. Holy crap. That's all I got to say about that. First of all, there's so much, and we're 46 minutes in already. I, I wish we had three hours for this because uh, I don't think we, we haven't even scratched the surface here on this. But uh, there's so much for me to comment on there. First of all, the amount of detail in your memory is um, striking. The fact that you remember your childhood uh, home phone number and everybody's name in this story. I have a sim, not a similar story, but a story that is somewhat like that, that was a profound moment in my life. And I've told it many times. I'm sure you've told this story many times to oh, many yeah. different people. Yeah, yeah. Now in my life, there are times when I've told the story related to the story that, that mine that's similar to yours. Um, to people where doubt has creeped in where I said, you know, am I imagining that? Did I imagine that? Or, and I know I didn't, I know the, the actual events happened, 
but am I am I imagining some of the details? Am I taking them out of context? Am I putting more meaning onto things that and and I let people talk that into me? Uh, you said you've never had any doubt. Have you ever had any those kind of doubts where people uh, you told the story to somebody and they say, "Ah, oh, come on, maybe you're attaching too much meaning to this. Maybe that part of it was any of that." Oh yeah, I mean one of my one of my high school buddies, Bob Ratu, who's still up there. He's the librarian at St. Paul's. He says, "You know, look." Um, Human beings, he's an existentialist, right? So human beings are desperately seeking meaning and they create meaning wherever the hell they can. And they attribute meaning to things that are total chance. And you got to think about it this way. But on the other hand, you know, to me, an experience like that um, was so uncanny and it was so beyond chance and probability. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it just pointed to something larger and more integrating, more anthropocentric, if you will, in the universe. And, 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 and yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so, and I wrote the book, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little older now and I've been successful. I've been, you know, everywhere I've been, I've gotten tenured and so forth, but, um, you know, I wrote this book partly because, um, I think a lot of people, even around this medical school have had, you know, experiences like you're talking about, you know, synchronistic experiences, but they're kind of, they, 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 they repress it. Right, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I wanted them to have an opportunity to, to talk about it and kind of get disinhibited. Well, you know? here's what I'm going to say to that. You say a lot of people, I think some people, uh, yeah. maybe a lot of people because there's 7 billion on the planet, but I think there's people who've had these experiences the, the, as as profound as the one that you've just described, they're not all that common, or maybe they have repressed them to the point where they uh, yeah. don't. But if if I'm correct, and it's a, a more rare, and we'll come back to what Einstein mm -hmm. thought about, these, these things came to him with some kind of purpose. Do you yeah. ever ask yourself, why me? Why, am, why was I chosen to be the one to go out west and save this guy on the bridge. Does that do? You, have you ever had those thoughts about wh I, why you know, me? <laughs> yeah, I, I I I wonder about that. But I'll tell you, you know, um, I do feel as though um, when people ask me where I'm from, okay, even I mean I'm, I'm I've lived in so many places, but I always my first uh, uh, default answer is Route 80. <laughs> And, and they like draw a Route 80. Nobody yeah. lives on Route 80. <laughs> but, but I feel like it's my home. I mean, when I, so I'm here on Long Island, you know, and, and I sometimes feel a little claustrophobic on the island. I even take that Port Jeff ferry just to yeah. get up on the water, you know. But if I really want some inspiration, I'll actually drive over the George Washington Bridge <laughs> and I'll drive out to Lewisburg and I'll just remember those experiences. And wow. Uh, and it's it's always inspiring, and I love the Delaware Water Gap. I love the openness of, you know, the continent of America, if you will. And 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 so 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 I but it, but there is a kind of um, solitariness when you've had these experiences. But I don't let that worry about of, of me. And if you don't if they don't repeat frequently, I've had some similar experiences over the years. But I'll tell you, you know. Uh, I found a friend, uh, uh, and and the friend um, was a great Jewish artist named Mark Chagall. 
So I, I, I was in Chicago. I was, I was, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then I got a job at Fordham at the Marymount campus in Terrytown teaching philosophy for three years before I went out to Case Western to their bioethics program. And the guy I shared my office with, Gabe Gomez, who's still alive, he was pretty well known comparative religion type dude, you know? So he knew all, he wrote books about all the world religions and points of contact and so forth. And so he asked me, how did I get into, uh, because I'd gone to the University of Chicago, I'd I'd quit um, University of Pennsylvania in a program that was all expenses paid NIH in immunology. And I went to the University of Chicago also on on a scholarship and I studied world religions with, you know, Marcia Eliade, Joseph Campbell, you know, all those kinds of people. And I told Joseph Campbell, who was halftime there and halftime at Sarah Lawrence, my story about the dream with Marcia Eliade, who wrote the book called Shamanism. He was the great mystic, you know, in the swift kick dining room of Swift Hall, University of Chicago Div School. And, and, uh, and and they they were both there and they they were they were stirring their coffee, and um, Campbell said synchronicity, and Eliade said that's a beautiful story. Wow! And so 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 from there I went I, you know I, I came east I, and I and, you know and I and I, I taught at Fordham and I loved that and, and the, but the first day I'm in my office, <clears throat> Gabe Gomez asked me how'd you get into this I said well. I had, you know, tell you the truth. I'm just following a journey. And I had a dream when I was 15. I explained. And he said, you've got to go over to Peconico Hills, which is a little town behind Terrytown. You know, it's and that's where like the Rockefeller family had their big mansion and stuff. And there's a church there called the Union Church. Which I'd never heard of. And Gabe said to me, you got to go over to that Union Church and you just got to sit down and take it in. So it was about a 45-minute walk. You have to go around a reservoir and then up a back road and so forth. And I got to the Union Church. And I looked up at the whole back wall of the church is this big, bright blue stained glass window called the Good Samaritan, which is really famous. I mean, anybody can Google it and they'll see it. And in the middle of it is this... uh, Blue Angel. And so I got really interested in Chagall. And I thought, how the hell was he was he doing all that stuff with Blue Angels? So I started actually studying Chagall. When he was, so he grew up, this is so uncanny. He grew up in a little city uh, on the on on the uh, on the west side of Russia, you know. And his dad, he was 17, his dad had a had a factory. And they pickled herring. He wrote a book called he wrote a book called My Life about uh, you know when he was about thirty five years old and he talks about all this. <clears throat> it's a pretty it's, it's a beautiful little book, small but beautiful. And um, so his father wants him to work in the factory, and he he just doesn't feel that's his destiny. So he runs away. Wow. He that's runs familiar. away. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He runs away to St. Petersburg because he was not going to work in that factory. <laughs> Holy moly. 
And then he's sketching on the streets of St. Petersburg. And um, uh, he doesn't have any money. He hasn't done any major artwork at all. Um, and he's sleeping in an alley one night. And he's not sure if he's awake or asleep. But he's sleeping on a, on a mattress next to some big, huge, bearded uh, 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 worker, you know, laborer who's kind of, kind of pushed against the wall a little bit. And, and Chagall talks about his vision of a blue angel, that the whole alleyway is high, as high up as he could see, filled with the color blue. It was like raining blue. And then he writes, this is in his book, My Life. I mean, it, you know, it's a great, uh, great piece of literature. And he says, uh, then this angel descended, and I felt total peace. And I knew that blue was the color of love. And then the angel ascended. The next day, the guy goes out and he does his first oil painting, and it's called The Apparition, and it's of a blue-white angel. And he did all these, even the UN, you know, all these stained glass, they're all blue. And, and um, uh, you know, when, so when he dies outside of Paris, he's in his studio and he's painting a blue angel. And, and he, he just, was, it was unbelievable. And and so I had the you know I I, I had I I felt when I when I discovered Chagall somehow or another I had a brother <laughs> I know it sounds really strange <clears throat> so lo and behold um, I, I I really uh, yeah, I began to 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 write a few articles you can Google I've written some articles on Chagall and there was a woman named Vivian Jacobson who was his right hand and she was doing a talk at uh, Beconico Hills, this is in 2014, on, on uh, Chagall, because she knew his life better than anyone else. And I was, I was there to respond to her and to talk about Chagall's spirituality, which was completely eclectic, not religious, just deeply spiritual, every kind of imaginable symbol under the sun. <clears throat> and um, so it was great. It was raining like crazy that night. And I, and, and so it's about 12 at night and I, everything wraps up <clears throat> and I drive, you know, down, I took the Hutchinson, you know, and I, and I went over the Throg's neck and I get into Stony Brook and it's about, Oh, you know, it's pretty late. It's like gotta be two 30 in the morning or so. And I happened to go over to my computer to check my email. And there's an email from <clears throat> a Duray Ahmad, who's a feminist, uh, Muslim in uh, Lahore, Pakistan, who's, who's, who's on the board of my Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which Sir John Templeton funded. I won't even go into that. But anyway, studying love scientifically and at the, at the interface of spirituality. And so she said, your website's been completely taken down. So I went to the website. It's just unlimitedlove.org, unlimitedloveinstitute.org. It had been completely destroyed, and there was a flag, a black flag, and it said Team DZ ISIS, FU. Wow. And, and so I, I looked at that, and and I thought, that's really amazing. It turns out, I mean, I have a newsletter that goes out pretty widely, and 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 I I know I knew um, um, some of the people in the Middle East who were quite influential. And they would—they were basically um, uh, Sufi Muslim, and so they would spread it out. And it was getting quite a following. And I think that's what happened. I think that this was a reaction from the more violent uh, elements. 
because uh, you know ultimately, I mean, the Islam is a very beautiful tradition, wow. um, and and so um, that's what happened. And and what was I going to do? So okay, now here's here's synchronicity. Um, at the time, um, my most of my board members are from Chagrin Falls, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and um, I called them up. We had a lot of conversation. You can see most of them are still listed on the website. And they decide, you know, don't react negatively. Take this as an opportunity. Expand the canvas. So I said, okay, why don't we have an essay contest for young people from all over the world to write reflective essays about how they've pushed back in their personal lives against peer pressure to hate other people just because they didn't believe what they believed. Wow, heavy. <laughs> we got a, we got two thousand of these letters. Uh, these these. Uh, 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 beautiful essays and poems from people from all over. It was beautiful. And I, I actually, I mean, I, I took a week off because I had to sort through them. And then I got it down to like the top 100 and I gave it to my, to my board to sort through. We picked out about 20 winners. At that time, I was also co-chairing the UN population fund uh, uh, meetings on uh, uh, spirituality and sustainability. And they sort of got wind of, uh, well, I let them know. They, they got wind of this uh, event I'd had with, with ISIS. And by the way, the FBI did interview me and all that stuff, you know. And, um, um, and so they said, why don't you do World Youth Day? So in 2016, in August, my little institute um, was in charge of World Youth Day. And we filled the entire UN headquarters with young people from all over the world. <clears throat> I mean, most of them paid their own way, but our winners, we paid their way. And uh, we even had, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joanna Kuranska, you know, the sort of the backup violinist from the Emerson Supreme Quartet and just great people playing. And 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 then these, these young people did their, they acted their beautiful uh, poems and, and short stories. And, and it was very, very powerful. Um, and, 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 and all I could think is I watched that. I brought, by the way, I invited a lot of the medical students from Stony Brook to go and they all showed up. <clears throat> but, the, you know, it, it, so, so you, you say, like, how, how does this all string together? That's what I'm telling. So, you know, I feel like my life is kind of strings together. And if, if I mean, if, if I hadn't had the Blue Angel dream as a kid when I was 15, you know, uh, I would I, I would never have done I would never have gone to the University of Chicago Divinity School I would never have done the stuff I've done I, yes. I no way on earth and, and, you, and you wouldn't have been out west and you would not yeah all of it all of it <laughs> whole nine yards I mean you know I mean I you know I, I was still emailing Steve Jobs in 2008 before he died <laughs> it's Steve dot Apple. Okay. So, right, yeah, yeah. so, you know, the, the thing about it, um, and we, by the way, took uh, Alchemy 101 together. Wow. And, and, and we also, at Reed College, calligraphy was really cool. Everybody did calligraphy. He was a great calligrapher. And that's why the that. font in Apple is so, so much more developed, you know, than, than anything Gates could have done. Yeah. And, and the reason why Apple's Apple is because Steve would disappear. He'd, he'd hitchhike north about a couple hours to the apple orchards, and they didn't have apple picking machines back then, so it all had to be done by hand. He needed money. He'd come back Monday, he had all these bags full of apples, he had cash, and he was pretty happy. That's why Apple's Apple. 
Just FYL. I, I always thought it had something to do with the Beatles because that that's a you know I thought you know the Beatles changed their to their record or called their record company Apple. Yeah, yeah, you might think that, but no, it had to do with those Granny Apples up there. But not you know basically. So so if if I hadn't had that, I mean my life I've I've never if you said did I make my life? No, I did I did not create my life. I've been following a dream all my life. And 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 the and God Love on Route 80, Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness is all about just meeting people unexpectedly. And all I can do is be open to them and respond to them. So Sir John Templeton, I'm sitting in my office at Case Western Medical School. It's, it's 2000. I get a fax from Sir John Templeton, who runs the Temple. He sold the Templeton funds. He's worth, you know, X billions of dollars. And he's, you know, we talked a little bit because I met him in a different context. And he was really interested in, you know, world, world, world spirituality and love. He was kind of like a Chagall type character. So he, he faxes me from Lyford Key in the in, in Nassau. And, he, and I'm sitting there and I, by, by, at that time I was doing quite a lot of stuff on Alzheimer's and genetics. And so he, he faxes me and he said, Stephen, we need to start an institute to study the greatest force in the universe, love. But then he said, not just human love. He said, and I have this framed, he said, the love that made humans. Right. Okay. And so um, I said, what should we call it? I faxed him back. He didn't email, but he loved, He thought fax machines were really cool. So he, he, uh, he faxed back, let's call it the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Wow. How do so you study like, love? Um, I, was, I, was, I was like, a little bit nervous because I thought, you know, one of my friends, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this, but you know, this is going to be tough. My department chair is going to freak. And so, so I, I faxed Sir John, maybe we should call the Institute for creative altruism. Cause that's like a really nice dry sciencey word that could even work, you know, in a, in this environment. So, yeah, yeah right. So he faxed back. <clears throat> no, Stephen, Unlimited love, up to $8.9 million. And, you know, Matt, I did what you would have done. I faxed back just right away. I said, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And, you know, he was so right because he was a spiritual intuitive. And he knew this would allow us to have more interface with the, with the spiritual world, the, the spirituality of people around the globe. And 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 uh, so we funded all these things, and 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 it was great. But you know, I only met Sir John because you know he was brought into my path. And I, and by the way, he died in two thousand and eight, so he's on his deathbed in Lyford Key. And his son Jack is a pediatric trauma surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And so I'm I'm on Route eighty, coming from Cleveland. With some tears in my eye to Stony Brook because they'd recruited me here, and and there were some glitches economically at Case Western for me, so I came to Stony Brook, and I love you know I love like Stony Brook. I really give the place a lot of credit. It's a good school, um, but I, I I I'm on Route 80, and I I have a flip phone at the time. I don't have a cell phone. I have a flip phone. I get a yeah, call. Right. It's from Jack Templeton. It says, "Stephen, Dad is dying." I knew he'd been sick. I'm so sorry, Jack. And, 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 and he said, he, he has one deathbed wish. And I said, Jack, what's that? And Jack said, well, he, he's, 
there's a book that he wants to write. He wrote several pretty good books. There's a book that he wants to write, and he's not going to have time to write it before he dies. So he wants you to write it for him. <laughs> Can you believe that? Wow. So, so I said, oh, my God. And I said, did he give you a title, Jack? And Jack said, yeah, he gave me a title. Ultimate reality is unlimited love. Wow. And so, wow. Then, I, so then I said to Jack, Jack, just to take a little pressure off me, could we put a question mark at the end of that? <laughs> so there was total silence for like three minutes. And I guess, you know, Jack had gone to Sir John and Sir John said, okay, is ultimate reality unlimited love? So if you Google, if you go to Amazon, I wrote a book with the Templeton Press. It's like 400 pages long. And it's all got a lot of correspondence with Sir John and all these Nobel Prize physicists and theologians who, who, who interacted with him, uh, letters and all kinds of things. Uh, and it's entitled, Is Ultimate Reality Unlimited Love? Question mark. Wow. With a forward by John Templeton and Josephine Templeton, his wife, who was a anesthesiologist in at shop. Oh, so yeah. I didn't plan any of this stuff, man. I, I mean, come on, you know, are you kidding me? But yeah, you I, didn't I, plan it, but it, it did happen. So, uh, and I can understand how it, it definitely feels like it's being guided by something, some force, unseen force. Uh, but again, so many, so few people experience the, the profoundness of that uh, feeling that you feel that it, it, it's, it begs the question why you. Listen, uh, we are an hour and um, 10 minutes in. And uh, I, I don't mind hanging out a little bit longer today, but just notice that know that the longer we go, the less people will listen to this. So I'm going to uh, put you on a spot right now and say you have to come back. Will you agree to put okay. yeah. I, I will come back. Right. And in, in God and Love and Relating, there's I, I'm gonna just there's one paragraph here that I just want to share, and then we'll right. say goodbye. Okay. No, it's, I got one more question. Oh, another question after you share that. Go ahead. W.H. Auden, the great Oxford poet, he was like a proto-hippie, hung around all the greens. And so here it goes. One fine night in June 1933, I was sitting on a lawn after dinner with three colleagues, two women and one man. We liked each other well enough, but were certainly not intimate friends, nor had any one of us a sexual interest in another. Incidentally, we had not drunk any alcohol. We were talking casually about everyday matters when quite suddenly and unexpectedly, something happened. I felt myself invaded by a power which, though I consented to it, was irresistible and certainly not mine. For the first time in my life, I knew exactly, because thanks to the power I was doing it, what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. I was also certain, though the conversation continued to be perfectly ordinary, that my three colleagues were having the same experience. And in the case of one of them, I was able to confirm this. <clears throat> my personal feelings toward them were unchanged. They were still colleagues, not intimate friends. But I felt their existence as themselves to be of infinite value. And I rejoiced in it. W.H. Auden. Nice. Nice stuff. Yeah. I want people to get the book. I, I have ordered the book. The book's on its way here. Uh, I, I plan on reading it, and then we can talk more about it. Uh, and yeah. I definitely want to talk more about the book. But uh, on this idea of, 
uh, unlimited love and all this stuff. Let's say, let's say people people don't need any more questions answered, which I find really hard to believe. How is it, is there a practical way to a practical application for people's lives in, in all of this stuff? Because it feels like and you've used the word luck before and i don't i'm not even sure i believe in luck or not, but but we can discuss that at another point but it feels like a lot of this stuff is driven by forces unseen whether you call it luck whether you call it universal love whatever is guiding all this stuff so is there a practical application or are we just feathers on the breeze and just like what because you know the old that's how gump starts and ends with that feather on the breeze thing like yeah. that's that's how light that sounds like a lot of your story was feather on a breeze like you didn't plan it you, the, the winds just took you where it took so practical applications is there that or should we just from your perspective be feathers yeah well i think there's going to be um well we, we i think we all are feathers but i think that they're are going to be lots of difficult times in everyone's life. I've known some myself. And, um, you know, the message of unlimited love is not that people are perfect or that life is simple or easy, but we always have to expand the canvas. So, you know, Stony Brook, yeah. when I got here, okay, I had my wife, and my 12-year-old son, I have a daughter who's older, and we were in the Three Village Inn. You know where that is along the yeah, shore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's it's okay. It's kind of a little bit mildewy and stuff like that in the, in the bedroom. So, <laughs> and my wife wasn't real happy. And and my son was getting texted from his buddies in Shaker Heights, Ohio, on the soccer team. Hey, Andrew, where are you? <laughs> They started screaming at me, and it was it was July 2008, and there was this incredible thunderstorm, huge lightning, unbelievable amount of rain. It's like nine at night, and there was nothing I could do, Matt. I'm sorry. I said to my son and my, my wife, I said, you know, I'm just going to go out and get some pizza. So I went out on ninety on on um, uh, on on uh, uh, you know the main road through town um, uh, and. Um, and I went to Old Town Road, um, and uh, there was a pizza place there called Little Tony's Pizzeria on the right. And I w walked through the parking lot and um, got saturated, and I come into the foyer, okay? And there's two newspapers on a little rack. Now, one of them is the New York Post. Now, Shirley Kenny, who'd been the president of this place, she called me up personally and said, if you come here, Governor Spit, uh, Elliot, uh, uh, what, what's his name? Elliot, Elliot Spitzer. Spitzer. Yeah. He's going to be very helpful to you. He wants you to develop your programs on compassionate care all around New York. So that kind of put me over the top because I wasn't sure I wanted to come here. And so it's the New York Post front page. There's Governor Spitzer and the headline is Governor No More. Patterson ascends, and there's a big picture of Spitzer with his socks and his leotards on. And you know what happened there, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So I thought, okay, Mike, well, that's not going to work out. Uh, Governor Spitzer is not going to be helping me out. And then the other, only other paper on the rack, you got to have some lightness of being to operate like I do. 
<laughs> three Village Herald. No, I never heard of the Three Village Herald, but it's a little uh, newspaper that comes out around Port Jefferson and, and Stony Brook. So there it is. There's only one headline on the front page. <laughs> this is hilarious. Unlimited love comes to Stony Brook. Wow. Some cub reporter had dug, I've been on, you know, Dr. Oz and oh, some of these shows. And just, so she she dug up the stuff about the Institute and she actually interviewed Richard Fine, who was the dean of the medical school. And he's a kidney transplant uh, surgeon and a, and, a neuro, and, a, and a nephrologist. And um, he said, well, you know, we don't we don't know too much about this unlimited love stuff, but we think he can do a good job. Credit to Richard Fine. And then they went to Iris Granick, who's still my chair in this department. And she's a very nice woman and a great doctor. And she kind of has a spiritual side door, you know. And so the, this reporter asked her what she thought about this. And she said, well, you know, we think he'll be okay. So they let it go. And then to, this is the last, last bit of the story. This is why you, I say expanded canvas. It's like Jackson Pollock, you know, a gob of dark gunk in the middle of the canvas. But by the time he's covered it up with all these beautiful lines, it's beautiful. You've got to expand the canvas or life is over. And that's what love is really about. It's about knowing that if you, if you, if you, if you put your heart into it, you can expand any canvas, any darkness, and make it something beautiful. And that's my philosophy of life. So, so I, the next morning I call Shirley Kenny. You know, there's a street called Shirley Kenny Drive here. You know, and yeah. so I call. I said, I said, President Kenny, um, did you see that article about Governor Spitzer? She said, Yeah, I guess he's not going to be helping you out. I said, Okay. <clears throat> and then, and then I said, Did you see the, the Three Village Herald? And she said, Yeah, I saw that. I was curious. I said, Did you get any phone calls about it or any feedback? She said, Yeah, I got phone calls from emeritus professors. I said, what did they say? She said, well, they were mostly male emeritus professors, and they asked me, what kind of love are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so we laughed. And then I'm coming up, you know, the you, you, you worked here, yeah. you know, the escalators. So I'm going up the escalators from L2 to L3, because we're on L3. And I'm up the escalator, and I'm like, you know, three quarters of the way up. And there's a guy up there at the top of the escalator. And this is summertime. He's got sort of a T-shirt on and, and, and he's not super burly, but he's, you know, he's got his, he looks a little bit like Mr. Clean. And he's, he's looking down at me and I looked up and I said, sir, do I know you? And then he said, are you Dr. Post? <laughs> you probably know Moshe. This is the guy. Yeah. Are you, this very Eastern European accent, are you Dr. Post? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, are you going to save us? <laughs> so I said, sir, I'm not sure about that, but but I, I'll, I'll do my best. So we became pretty good friends. We're actually good friends. But um, the thing about life is, is not that it's going to be perfect or easy or smooth sailing all the time, but you have to be open to surprises and you have to know that there's always an answer, even in the most difficult moments. Yeah. Wow, that's great hope. Hopeful message. I think that's the place where we should end it to for tonight. I do. I, I please do come back because uh, I'm only scratching the surface here. There's so much I want to ask you about this stuff. Just uh, and 
I don't know what this means, if it has any meaning at all, but my last day at Stony Brook was July 15th, 2008. Really? <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah. so oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were probably here when that guy Mike was still around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, I was, yeah, so I, I came in about, uh, probably about July 10th or 11th was my first day. So, we overlapped. Yeah, yeah. I probably saw you on the escalator. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Just really weird. Uh, anyway, um, play. I well, I'll put up the book one more time. I want to tell people stephengpost.com is where you want to go to find out about the book, find out more about Doctor uh, Post's work. And um, what was the uh, URL of of the uh, Universal Love? Uh, uh, the, it's it's unlimitedloveinstitute.org unlimitedloveinstitute.org I will put that in the description as well right now only the stephengpost.com uh, is in the description to appreciate your being here and I, I'm going to uh, stalk you until you come back because I definitely oh, want yeah, to stalk me anytime I, I like you I like, I like I, we, have, we have a pretty unique rapport going on here so I'd love to do this again great thank you for coming tonight Lots to think about, and uh, I'm kind of blown away. I, I got to process just what we've talked about here tonight, yeah. but there's so much more I want to talk to you about. So yeah. thanks. Yeah, and and that kid on the bridge, you know, I mean, it, it's it was such a powerful thing, and it changed my life because I didn't really know. I thought, you know, maybe this the dream was just, you know, my weird imagination, but yeah. when I had that experience, I began to sense that, you know. I mean, maybe that you say, you know, why me? Um, because I would notice it. Right. Well, that's kind of what I was hoping you would kind of deliver me a, a answer for that. It's like I, I'm torn between uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive, that kind of philosophy towards it. So you were the one who would not reject the idea uh, because so many people might have that dream and just like dismiss it and just yeah. let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, yeah. And again, the hope for meaning, we want to attach meaning to it. And I'm wondering if that's me, my uh, wanting so badly that for meaning to exist that I, I put mm -hmm. that in there. So it, I think there's some of that. I think there's some subjectivity, but, but that doesn't rule out some objectivity. Okay. You know, we want meaning, but I also think that there is meaning. We create it, but it's also there to be found. It's kind okay. of paradoxical, something like that. I'll think about that. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to uh, stick with this whole message of hope that you, you delivered okay. at the end. And, uh, right. and uh, <laughs> until next time, please be well, and thanks for coming. Okay, it's here. a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks for, your, for everything. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Great. Uh, Stephen G. Post, PhD, over at Stony Brook University, my uh, my old stomping grounds. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you're as blown away as I am by that conversation. Uh, still a whole lot more to talk about there. I'm fascinated by luck. I'm still the meaning of dreams because I have, you know, he, he said he's not a big dreamer, but in this one period in his life where he had recurring dreams. and uh, But I have not necessarily recurring dreams, but deep dreams that feel like they have deeper meaning to me and i had one just this you know i take a nap <laughs> between my morning show and my evening show often take naps and i took one today and i had uh a dream of a friend who had passed just last labor day weekend 
and uh, he came to me, and I, I, in the dream, I said, you know, you're dead. And he said, no, I'm not. And uh, that was right before this program. And so, and that thought, and but it felt bigger than just a dream. I don't know if that makes sense to people. And maybe I, maybe I should end it here because I'm rambling a little bit about this. But the dream stuff fascinates me. Uh, the idea of um, this whole higher being more intelligent being that create that might be uh, responsible for the creation of everything and how that ties into uh who we are and how as individuals because there is individuality in all of us a whole lot left still to talk here i hope you'll come back i will definitely let you people know in the meantime please uh write to me at infomindogtv.com and let me know your thoughts on this i'll be with you for coffee and uh with the dog in the morning comedian trent rap will be my guest and that should be just a light-hearted conversation about all the crap that's going on in the world uh so thanks for coming have a great rest of your night and bye for now
to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.